we're in week five of kingdom submission. And we are looking at how we are to relate to each other. We're looking at how we're to relate to, relate to the world all around us. We started in, in this, Peter uh, uh, started uh, uh, encouraging us to have the right relationship with the government, right? With the government. And then it went from the government to unjust rulers. How are we to respond when we are unjustly treated from our boss or from, from those in life in general where we are mistreated? And then, it, and then this idea of submission went to the home and to marriage. We talked about how husbands and wives are to submit to one another and to love and to serve each other. And then we looked at the church last week. Who was here last week and heard the message about the, the, the attributes of a church that please the Lord, that we are to be, have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and that, and that we are to walk in these, in these attributes that please the Lord. And that, that those attributes, for us to walk in those attributes, we have to have a mutual submission to one another. And that this is truly a blessing to be a part of a family of God where we can submit to one another and we can see the gospel move forward through our lives, through our fellowship. Well, today... Peter begins to talk about what it looks like whenever we as believers relate to those in the world that don't agree with us. When we relate to those, when we, how do we relate to unbelievers in the world? How do we relate to those who are against us? And in that first century context, not only against them verbally, verbally but physically against them as, a, as, as first century Christians, they were persecuted for their faith. He's helping them to learn how to respond to them. But in our context, how do we respond to those who don't don't believe in Christ? And not only those who don't believe in Christ, but those who don't believe in Christ and are actively against the Christian message, actively against the biblical message. Those who revile the gospel, its message and its messengers have been around since the beginning. I mean, that's ultimately why they crucified Christ, that was, that, that was the reason. They didn't believe in Jesus. They reviled Jesus because, because of what he came to do, because of who he claimed to be. And so from the beginning of Christianity, when, even when Jesus walked the earth, his message was not received. Look what John 15 says about that reality, what Jesus said. Jesus said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so the section we're going to look at in 1 Peter will help us in our relationship with those who oppose the gospel. Those we are in relationship. Maybe you're in relationship with somebody personally that is in opposition to the gospel. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you live with them. Maybe... Maybe, maybe it's the people that are on TV. You guys get in an argument with people on TV? You guys ever get in an argument with somebody on social media? I was getting in an argument with, with Disney last night. With the characters that they're portraying, they're putting out there. I was getting in an argument with them. With the TV producers. And that, that this is the world in which we live. It's not just people that we are personally in contact with. It's not just people that, that maybe we, we work with, our boss, our coworker, a family member that doesn't believe in the gospel. And so because of that, they ridicule us or maybe they, they speak harshly about us. But it's the culture at large. It's, it's what we are seeing all around us. 
And if we're not careful, we cannot have the right approach to how we respond to the situation we live in as Christians. And so this is what this text is going to do. It's going to help us to deal with our relationship to the ideas, and but ultimately to the people who are opposed to Christianity, who are opposed to biblical truth and morality. So let's look at 1 Peter 3. And I just have to warn you on the front end, okay? This is a lot of section that we're going to cover. It took me a while to figure out how I'm going to approach this. And, and I've, been, I've read lots of commentaries and books on this section. And the section we're going to co- cover ultimately is from verse 9 down to verse 22. That's a lot. But we're going to work our way through it uh, in different sections. But from everything I've read, this is some of the most uh, complicated sections of Scripture in the New Testament to understand and to interpret. And so I have spent many times, a lot of hours, working through this and saying, Lord, help me to understand this and to explain it to your people. So here's, here's the section, 1 Peter 3, verse 9 through 18. It says this, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Amen? This is God's word. Lord, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we ask that you would help us to receive your word today. Help us to receive it with glad hearts, that we would receive it and we would apply it to our lives so that we can live transformed lives in the middle of a world that is opposed to gospel truth. Lord, let us live our Christian life. Let us be public with our faith. Lord, I pray that you would help me today to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question I have today is how are we to respond to opposition? And this is the overall context of what Peter is saying here to first century Christians and what we are hearing here today in our context. How are we to respond to opposition, to people who are opposed to our message, who are opposed to Christianity? Well, the first section of this text, this lengthy text here, I think it could be framed like this. Do not fight fire with fire. Do not fight fire with fire. Look back at the text. That's, that's what he says here. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. Let him keep, whoever desires to love life and see good does, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So how are we to respond to opposition? Peter makes it clear. Do not Give evil for evil. Do not revile in return. Do not fight fire with fire. And is that not our natural response when we are reviled? 
when we are spoken against? What is it? There's something that rises up within us. It's a natural response because of our sinful tendencies that when somebody speaks evil against you, what do you do? You kind of, you bow up a little bit. You know, something stirs up on the inside of you and you think, well, hey, you can't say that to me. You can't talk to me like that. You can't speak to me in those ways. You can't talk about my God like that. You can't, you can't talk about God's word like that. And so that is our natural response to respond when somebody does something to us that is evil or bad with their actions or with their words is to do it in like manner. Is that, am I the only one? Am I the only person who struggles with that? Are you guys got it all figured out? No, I think we're, we're all there, right? That is our natural response. And Peter, think of the context. Again, this is so important for us to go back. Think of how difficult that would have been for those first century Christians to hear that. Do not respond with evil to evil. Do not revile in return. And when he is telling them that, the literal reality for them is that they are facing physical persecution and the possibility of death of themselves or their loved ones. And so for them, it would have been easier for them to pick up the sword and to say, no, we're going to fight back against Rome. We're going to fight back against our persecutors. And here Peter comes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, don't fight evil with evil. Don't revile when you are reviled. Don't curse when you are cursed. Don't fight fire with fire. You remember Peter picked up the sword when Jesus was arrested and cut off Malchus's ear. And what did Jesus tell Peter? Put your sword away. But that is our, that is our tendency. And our context may be different because we're not experiencing physical persecution yet. Our context may be different, but it is very similar. What is it that was motivating the persecution in the first century church? It was Satan. It was a spirit of antichrist that was motivating people to persecute physically those who are believers in Jesus Christ, to ridicule them, to curse them, and to threaten them with their lives. It was a spirit that is against Christ. That's what the Antichrist spirit is. It is something that is inside of someone that is motivated by Satan that is against Christ. Look what, look what 1 John says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Many people think, well, we've been waiting on the spirit of of Antichrist. No, it, it was there then. In Bible times, and it's still here now, if somebody is opposed to Christ, that Jesus came in the flesh and he is from God, they carry about themselves a spirit of Antichrist. Now, some people are a little more vocal, but that same spirit causes people to be a little more vocal to speak against biblical worldviews. Do you see that today? You would have to be blind and deaf to not see it. You have to not be watching or hearing or listening or paying attention You have to have your head in the sand to not recognize that all around our world today, that biblical views are under attack. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack. And why is that? Why is that happening? Why does it happen? I believe it's very simple. Because it points people to an objective standard of truth. It points people to an objective standard of truth. Nobody wants to believe in an objective standard of truth. 
Everyone wants to have their truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. I live. And that's the phrase. You need to just live, live your truth. Is anybody here living their truth here today? Just live your truth. So this is why whenever we as Christians, this is so important that we actually do this. This is a temptation for us as Christians to back down and to water down the objective truth. But when we live as Christians and we say, this is right and this is wrong because God's word says it. This is the way to heaven because this is what scripture has revealed to us. This is what God's word has revealed to us about the standard for morality, for marriage, for family, for gender, for sexuality. These are the biblical parameters that God has given us. When we declare those things clearly, compassionately, boldly, But when we declare them, the world doesn't want that. So this is why they oppose the message. Because it points people to an objective, not a subjective, standard of truth. And and, and here's here's another reason. An objective standard of truth that comes from a transcendent creator and lawgiver. That's why they reject that. Because if there is an objective standard for truth, then it means it comes from somewhere who is the one who created that objective standard in truth. So no one wants to be accountable and that transcendent creator, that transcendent creator and lawgiver is revealed to humanity in the person and work of Christ. And what does the work of Christ tell every single human being? What does the work of Christ tell every single human being? Before it tells them, before it tells them that he loves, that, that God loves them, it tells them that they're guilty. That he, God loves them because they are guilty. You guys get that? God so loved the world because the world was in sin and guilty and separated from God. That's how God demonstrated his love was that he came in spite of us. He came in spite of our sin. How many of you would come to die for somebody that didn't like you or hated you? Would you ever do that? Scripture even talks about that. We don't die for our enemies. But Christ, as it says in Romans, demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and this is what the cross of christ tells the world so this is why they are opposed to our message ultimately so i have to ask you a question have you ever read something on social media that got your blood boiling so the world's contrary to the message right and you get on social media instagram uh, uh tiktok facebook all the old people are on facebook I don't know what the definition of old is, but all the old people. I think the old people get more arguments than the young people. But the older people get on Facebook and they get in these arguments or on social media. Have you you ever read something on social media? It gets your blood boiling and you're thinking, oh, this is not right. And your fingertips or your thumbs are on the phone and you're just like. What are you ready to do? You're ready to let them have it. This opposition. This stance against biblical truth, you're ready to let them have it. So what do you do? You press your buttons and you put it out there and you give them all the reasons why they're wrong. Whatever the, whatever the view is, if it's against God's word, whatever the view is, you put it out there and you feel so good about it, don't you? You sit back and you say, I am so good. I worded that perfectly. I'm sure they're going to be convinced. Have you ever convinced anybody on social media that they're wrong? Very rarely. I don't know if ever. I'm sure it has happened by God's mercy. But I'll be honest with you, that's the reason why I'm off Facebook. I I got off of social media, any social media account personally. I have the church account. But any personal account I got off of before before I became pastor. Because I had some heavy thumbs. (laughs) Because I like to preach. I like to communicate. I like to speak truth, biblical truth. And so I, I... 
was not going to get in that trap. So that's what we like to do. We like to, we, we, we like to respond, but what is God's word telling us here? Don't fight fire with fire. Don't post that comment. Don't make that post. Don't respond in like manner. Don't, when, when, when it's on social media, when it's your family member, when it's in person, when it's somebody, maybe on your job, in your family, what is Peter saying? Don't respond with evil for evil, with reviling for reviling. But what does it say? The text says, but on the contrary, bless. How hard is that? Sometimes you read sections in God's word and you think, that can't be what God wants us to do. He doesn't want me to be evil. I get that. He doesn't want me to revile and return. Okay, check. I can understand that. But you don't, you want me to actually bless them? On the contrary, the text says, bless. And he, and Peter says, for to this you were called. What does it mean to bless? That word bless literally means eulogy. You ever been to a funeral? What do you do when you give a eulogy? You're honoring that person's life. So when Peter says, don't revile, don't speak evil for evil, on the contrary, bless, he's saying, honor that person's life instead. Wow. God's word, God's word, uh, God's word's hard. God's word speaks to where we are. The word bless gives us a picture of speaking well of or to give a eulogy, finding ways to serve those who are opposed to us and our message. Is that not what the world characterizes us as? Well, you're just against us. May that never be so. May we never say that we are against you. I may not agree with your position and you may not agree with my position, but I am not against you. I love you. On the contrary, bless. Don't respond with evil words. Don't respond with anger or hatred or malice to those who are against you. We're believers in Jesus Christ. And Christ is our example. He laid down his life and came to serve those who wanted to kill him. It's the point that Peter is making here. So the question would be, so then you might be asking, well, Pastor Ben, are we to remain silent? So you're saying that, I, so don't make the post, don't, don't use my thumbs, uh, don't, don't respond in return. Are we to re- remain silent? No. Look what the text says. Go back to the text. This is a, the next section here. It says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? He's saying, live a good God-honoring life. For even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Listen. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You guys get it? We are to talk. We are to stand up. We are to speak. But how are we to speak to those who are opposed to biblical truth and biblical realities? 
We're to do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says, always be ready to make a defense. That word defense is where we get the word apologia, which is the study of apologetics, which is a defense of the faith. And many of you here today, you love the study of apologetics because it gives you reasoned understanding of why we believe in Jesus and why we believe in the resurrection. And it's, it's a defense of the faith. So we're called to, to, when somebody looks at us and we say, That my hope is not in just this life. My hope is in eternity. And they say, well, how can you have that hope? Give me a reason that we can make a reasoned defense with gentleness and respect to those who oppose us. This is what Peter is saying. They may not like our message. Our message may offend them. You can't stop the message from offending them. Don't ever believe that you can, well, I'm just going to kind of fix the message of, of the fact that they're guilty before God and that, and that they're deserving of eternal death. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that that doesn't offend. I, look, no matter how you put that, the scripture reality, the biblical reality that all of us, apart from the saving knowledge of Christ, are guilty, that's going to offend people. So the message will offend But may we never offend in the way in which we present it. But we always do it with respect and with gentleness. Don't fight fire with fire. Don't get sucked into fighting the wrong fight. We're not here to win arguments. We're here to win hearts. We're not here to win arguments. We're here to win hearts. Do you believe that here today? So this is how we are to respond. Don't fight fire with fire. The second way in which we're to respond to opposition in the world today is that we are to entrust our lives to the God who sees and hears. Look back at 1 Peter again. This is where we get this thought here today. We are to entrust our lives to the God who sees and hears. 1 Peter says, for the eyes of the Lord are on who? The righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. This is a promise. This is a promise connected with the admonition. What was the admonition? Don't fight fire with fire. Don't revile in return. Don't give evil for evil. There's a promise connected with that admonition. And the promise is that God sees. His eyes are on you. His ears, they hear you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? When God tells us and calls us to something that is difficult, we we can know for sure that he hears us. He sees us when he calls you to forgive the person that's hurt you the most. You can know that if he's calling you to do something that's difficult, that's hard for you to walk through, you can know that when you walk in that obedience and you obey the Lord, he hears you. He sees you. He knows your life. His eyes are on the righteous. He is giving loving care. What does that mean, his eyes are on the righteous? It means he's giving loving care to those who are his. We don't have to defend ourselves against those who speak against our biblical convictions and lifestyles. Why? We don't have to try to defend ourselves. Why? God's got us. His eyes are on us. His ears are open to our prayer. He hears the cries of our heart. You know, I think sometimes we look around the world and we think it's not fair. We think, man, I'm just serving the Lord here living his ways, and it just doesn't look fair. I look around at the world today, and, and I just see the, the unrighteous people prospering and getting wealthy, and everything looks good, and, and I just, it doesn't seem fair. It may, it may look like the wicked are getting away with their rebellion against God, and I, I've read this section before, Psalm 73. I want to read it again from the New Living. 
I think it really expresses how we feel sometimes in this life. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live with such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have trouble like other people. Look at all the healthy bodies on Instagram, right? They just look so perfect. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens. And their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. And that's so true. What does God know, they ask? What does God know? God's ways, God's word. What does God know? Does the Most High even know what's happening? We're too sophisticated. That's kind of that idea for today. We're too sophisticated for God and for a, a, an old book of morals and reality. We're too sophisticated. What does God know? What does the Bible know? Look at all these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. What does the Bible say? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears hear their cry. The next section of 1 Peter 3 says this. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That list right there in Psalm 73, that description. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When the idea of the face of the Lord being against them, it's a, it's a picture in scripture of the judgment of God. The face of the Lord is against those. He won't even look in their direction. Why? Because they are rebelling, rebelling against him. His face in judgment is against them. Wow. What does this tell us? It tells us that God will, in his perfect justice, make all things right in the end. That's what it tells us. The scales are in his hands. So we may look at the world and we may say, it's unjust that these people that are living the way they're living seem to get away with it. God's the one who holds the scales in the end. And, and the way that he judges who's right and who's wrong and who's righteous and unrighteous is not by the standard of the world. The standard is, is Jesus Christ. Have you received him as your savior and your Lord? Have, have your sins been forgiven? So what it tells us that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil is that God will make all things right. The scales of justice will be balanced. And we don't have to try to do God's job for him. He'll take care of everyone. What else does it tell us? Because the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It says the Lord will judge those who reject him and go their own way. I, you know, I think we think about the judgment of the Lord as Christians. We, we think about it when we first become saved and we're like, okay, whew, I'm saved now. I don't have to worry about judgment when I die. I've got my fire insurance. I'm good to go. And that, that's not Christianity. You know, the reality of the judgment of God is a biblical reality that should cause us to think deeply about those who oppose us. Not, not us, not us, but those who oppose Christ and his word. That, that, that's, it should cause us to think deeply, have heavy hearts. Look at the reality. So, this is the conclusion of Psalm 73. 
So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went to the sanctuary, O oh God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked, the ones whose God's face is against them. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Wow. You ever laughed at your dream in the morning? Thought, wow, that is so foolish. Think about that parallel. Then I realized, listen, this is so good for, listen, listen, if you're falling asleep, wake up, listen. Then I realized, it was in that moment the psalmist realized, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was torn up. I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. When I looked at the world all around me and their prosperity, I realized in the moment that their end is not good. And I was getting all torn up inside, reading the Facebook posts and seeing the cable news network and listening to the politicians and listening to all the laws that they're making. I was so torn up inside. And I had everything all backwards. I was focusing on the wrong thing. I was not focusing on the reality that those who reject Christ will spend eternity in hell. I was defending the truth. I was standing for righteousness, but I was so torn up inside. And the reality is is that when we're in that place, we can have no compassion for them. We lose our sense of compassion for the reality that if they die in their sins, the Bible tells us they have no hope for eternity. The biblical truth of judgment on those who reject Christ should never be cause for us to think ever that they got what they deserved. Oh, they just got what they deserved. Because the biblical truth is, is that all of us, if we get what we deserve, we all get the same thing. But Christianity says that in Christ, we don't have to get what we deserve. We can have mercy. We should be filled with great humility and thankfulness and compassion. So what do we learn from this text here so far? About how we respond to those who are opposed to Christ and his message through our lives. We learn that we can't fight fire with fire. And and then we must entrust our lives to the God who sees and hears and who holds true justice in his hands. And lastly this morning, how do we respond as we live in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation? I I think this is how I'd frame it here today. I, I I think we respond by remembering why Christ came. Remember why Christ came. Look at the text back in 1 Peter. As he's building here, he says, for Christ, he's using Christ as an example. He's saying, don't revile evil for evil. Don't revile in return. Don't speak evil with your words. For Christ, he's our example, suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Some translations say the just for the unjust. He's our example. And why did he suffer? That he might bring us to God. That's it. Why did Christ come? That he may bring you to the Father. So how do we respond to those who oppose Christ and his message? We remember why he came. He came for them. He came for those who oppose 
the message and oppose us for standing on that message. Can you imagine the first century Christians hearing that reality of right Christ came? He came for those who were against them. Physically threatening their lives. God came for them to bring them to God. That they might have faith in Christ. To bring us to God. In the death of Christ on the cross, Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. He took our place. The wrath of God for sin fell on the innocent Son of God. And Peter starts this section by reminding believers about how they are to respond when they are reviled and spoken evil of. And then he ends by saying, Jesus is our example. Listen. And in the example of Christ suffering unjustly for our sins, we are reminded of why Christ came. Jesus came to make possible. Listen, this is so important. Before we get into this next section, I want you to get this. Jesus came to make it possible for every sinner to find safety from judgment. Think about that. Just for a second, we're about to get into the most complicated section in all of, the New, of all the New Testament. I told you it's coming. I didn't read it yet because you probably read, I read the first section. And you're thinking, that's not too complicated, Pastor Ben. I was saving it to the end. Okay? Think about this. Jesus came to make possible for those on the news network that you think are just so liberal and they're out there and, and they're, they're, they have all these unbiblical views. He came to make it possible for every sinner to find safety from judgment. And now Peter says, okay, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you an example of what safety from judgment looks like. He's going to talk about Noah. This is the next section, continuing in verse, the second half of 18 into verse 19 through 22. Look at the example Peter gives to illustrate God providing safety from judgment. But being put to death in the flesh, Jesus made, was made alive in the spirit. He was resurrected. And when he was resurrected, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So what does that mean? I'm going to stop here just for a second. What it means is that while Jesus was, was the three days before his resurrection, in those three days, he went to the abyss. He went to, he went to uh, the section of, of, in the spirit realm, wherever uh, demons are housed. And he went and declared that he was triumphant and that Satan didn't win. You see that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through, through 15. He went in, he led captivity captive, and he declared to them, hey, by the way, I won. I won. Jesus didn't suffer in hell as a sinner. That's not biblical. He didn't suffer as a sinner in hell. But he went and he declared to the demon spirits that were bound in hell that, hey, I've got the keys. I won the victory. Okay? Now, it says, because these, these demons who were loosed on the earth during Noah's day, they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, so here's the example of finding safety from judgment. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and, and his family, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Interesting section. So one of the most controversial sections in this text right here is the phrase that says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
baptism, which corresponds to this picture of being saved from judgment now, saves you. So some churches and denominations will, will say that Peter is saying here that water baptism, water baptism is what justifies you. That when you get into the water, and like we did with Jade here this morning, when you get into the water and you're baptized, that when you're baptized, that is the moment that you're justified. That water baptism is, is the way in which we get saved. And so there, there, there are whole denominations and churches who preach this, even to this day. It's very common, very, very popular view. So I want to give you three reasons. This is a little caveat before I continue with my message because I believe it's important. But give you three reasons, and I could have a whole list of more reasons. But I'll give you three reasons why that cannot be true. That water baptism, and even some churches say you have to say a certain, you've got to just say Jesus' name when you're baptized, and that's what saves you. I'm going to give you three reasons why that cannot be true. Here's the first reason. First reason is this. That is not what the context is saying. The context is not talking about water saving anybody. What is the context talking about water? Water is doing what to people in Noah's day? It's killing them. Water is a sign of judgment, not of salvation in this context. In this context, water is not a picture of salvation. It's a picture of judgment. What saved the people in Noah's day and his family? What saved them? The ark. The context of this section is that the ark is what saves even though they go through the water, which would have killed them if they weren't in the ark. So the picture of this context does not tell us at all that water is what saves anybody. It's Christ who is the ark. It's pointing to Christ as the ark of safety. And he even says, I'm not talking about water like you would remove water, a dirt from your body. He even says that in the text. I'm not talking about water like a removal of dirt. I'm speaking to what Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what saves you. Do you guys follow me? So the context is not pointing to that. The second reason that I know this baptism is not saying that water baptism saves you is that saying that water baptism is what saves someone contradicts all of the New Testament scriptures concerning how someone is born again. All of them. Oh, oh, I mean, I could, I could have had you a list of a hundred scriptures if I wanted to here this morning. And you guys would have ran out the door when I started reading the list. All of the New Testament tells us in some way, shape, or form that salvation comes through faith. You remember when I read in Galatians this morning? It comes through faith in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. There is not a ceremonial rite. In Galatians, Paul was talking about circumcision as, a, as an outward sign. The, the, the Jewish Christians that were getting saved, they were trying to tell the non-Jewish males, hey, you gotta get, you gotta do something on the outside of your flesh that will save you. Christ is not enough. It's the same thing that people are saying with water baptism. They're saying, they're saying that faith in Christ is not enough. You have to have an outward ceremonial rite, water baptism, that will save you. And all of the New Testament would contradict that. So this is so important. Listen, you guys follow with me just real quickly. Such a key component of biblical interpretation. When you're looking at scripture and you come to a conclusion in one scripture, right? This text right here. If you come to a conclusion in one scripture that is contradictory to other portions of scripture, you've got it wrong somewhere. So one of the great tools of biblical interpretation is that you interpret scripture with scripture. 
And when they come together, you know you're on the right track. But if you're saying that water baptism saves you, then you're, con- you're contradicting Paul in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. You're, con- you're, 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 you're contradicting Jesus in his teachings. You're contradicting Moses in Genesis 15 when he wrote that Abraham was saved and justified by faith. Okay, you guys, you guys with me? Romans 10, 9 and 10. How are you saved? You believe in your heart that Jesus is God and he was raised from the dead. You confess with your mouth and you will be saved. The last reason that I think is really compelling is that Jesus did not ask the thief on the cross to get baptized before he died. Jesus did not ask the thief on the cross to get baptized before he died. Listen to this, Luke 23. One of the criminals who were, hang, who were, who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, today, you will be with me. Today, you will be with me. Not, hold up, Roman soldiers, give us about five minutes, we've got to sprinkle some water on this guy. And we've got to do it a certain way, or else it's not going to count. It's, not, it's just not true. So, that's a little sidebar. Let's get back to the text. What's the overall picture here? Let's get back to our flow here, right? So we don't revile in return. We don't count evil for evil. We don't speak evil against those who oppose Christ. What do we do? By, on, on the contrary, we bless them. And it's culminating in this reality, I believe this, this illustration that Peter is giving of Noah and judgment is what should weigh heavy on our minds when we think about how we are to respond to those who don't know the Lord and respond to those who are even contrary to us and evil towards us. Listen to what Peter says. Peter ends by reminding us that just as in Noah's day, judgment is coming. It is a great reminder for us that we must be preachers like Noah. Look at 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. For God did not spare angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, those are the ones that Jesus went and said, hey, I got the victory, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, who was Noah? A herald, a preacher of righteousness with seven others. So this is our call. To follow in the footsteps of Noah and be preachers of righteousness. Warning those who have not found safety in the ark of Christ to repent and believe. That's the picture of this section in First Peter chapter 3. It's the picture that if people don't find safety in the ark of Christ, they're going to receive judgment. You guys believe that? I know it's not an easy message and not something that we want to hoot and holler about. But why must we be heralds, preachers of righteousness like Noah today in this world? Because we live in the midst of a lost and a dying world that is thrown off restraint and, and they create their own truth. They live however they want to live and we have to be heralds of righteousness, but we must be, we, we, we must be heralds of truth, but we must do it with gentleness and patience and compassion. Why? Why? Because of what Revelation 21 says. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All of us here today will experience the first death, which is the death of this physical body. Not all of us have to experience the second death, which is separation from God for eternity. This is what Revelation 21 says is coming. We must warn that the second death is far worse than the first death. The second death, separation from God in hell forever, is far worse than any physical way you could die on this earth. You can die many different ways on this earth. You can suffer through cancer. You can die in a tragic car accident. You can, you can die in many different ways. It could be painful and harmful and difficult. But there is no way in which you could physically die today that would compare to the pain for eternity of being separated from your God forever. We must plead with people to receive the mercy that God has graciously extended through the ark who is Christ. Come, as Noah preached for 120 years. Come, come to the ark. Come to the ark. Refine safety. Judgment is coming. Come to the ark. Come to Christ. So if you're here today, I want to plead with you as Noah pled with people for 120 years. I want to plead with you today. Come to Christ today. Would you come today? Would you receive Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and thereby escape the second death? Would you come to Christ today? Would you place your faith? Would you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, that he was raised from the dead? Would you, would you be saved today? You can do that right now in this moment. Don't, don't wait another moment. Confess Christ as Lord. I want to I end with this quote. This is from the Bible Exposition Commentary. I think it sums up everything for us here today. As Christians, we can live on one of three levels. We can return evil for good, which is a satanic level. We can return good for good and evil for evil, which is the human level. Or we can return good for evil, which is the divine level. Jesus is the perfect example of this latter approach. As God's loving children, we must do more than give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is the basis for justice. We must operate on the basis of mercy, for this is the way God deals with us. This is the way God deals with us. So how do we respond to those who are opposed to Christ and his message? We deal with them on the basis of mercy, and we plead with them, come to the ark of safety, which is Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word here today that speaks truth to our life. I thank you for your word that confronts us in the areas of our life that are not right with you. Some of us could relate to the psalmist there in Psalm 73. We have been all twisted up on the inside, controlled by the the loud voices of a Christless culture. God, I pray that we would let those feelings go. And that we would see a Christless culture through the lens of judgment. That we would see them 
as in desperate need of mercy. And that we would relate to them as such. And that because of that, that we would be a herald of righteousness as Noah was. That we would preach the truth of Christ with love and compassion. God, I pray that our hearts would be gripped with a burden for those that don't know you. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that that is who they are. They, are, they recognize they're in a place of judgment here today and they want to confess Christ. I pray that this morning, in this moment, that in the quietness of their heart, that they would say, yes, Jesus, I surrender to you. I repent and I surrender and I turn to Christ today. May they, may they not wait any longer. And God, I pray, God, that we would live in light of that reality. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. You are dismissed. See you next week.